1: We are back with Dr. Scott Stevens, Director of Regional Operations for the Prairie and Boreal uh, with Ducks Unlimited Canada. On the previous episode, Scott introduced us to some of the conservation programs that DU Canada is involved in there in, um, in the prairies. And those were the, the types of programs such as restoration and protection, whether it be through acquisition or, or easements, the things that we do to put important waterfowl habitat back on the ground or to keep that good waterfowl habitat there but uh, but we're having him back on now to expand that discussion and share with us some of the exciting new programs uh, whether they be policy work or broader initiatives that they're involved in to help uh, impact waterfowl habitat so Scott thanks for taking the time to join us again. Yeah absolutely happy to be here. And let's just uh, give you the floor right here tell us about some of the new exciting programs that DU Canada is involved in.
2: Yeah. Well, as, as we talked about last time, you know, we have, we have direct programs that are sort of traditional programs for us that we've been doing for a long time focused on keeping habitat in place and, and restoring habitat where, where there's opportunity to do that. And those are really important. We can use our science to target those in the very best areas that provide benefits to waterfowl. So all of that is great. But the reality is that, as we talked about last time, the scale of the Prairie Pothole Region is huge. Once again, so we need some programs that have broad, extensive reach and impact. You know, millions of acres um, to have impacts across that broad landscape, and and really have the landscape be functional and. And remain sort of functional from a waterfowl standpoint and, and from a bunch of other standpoints too. So we have a number of programs that focus on that. Um, maybe one of the first that I'll talk about is across the three prairie provinces, each of those jurisdictions has, uh, wetland policy, um, or, or is in development of that. So in Canada, uh, one of the differences between Canada and the U.S. is, in the U.S., the jurisdiction for wetlands lies at the federal level. In Canada, it lies at the provincial level. So, instead of having a broad-reaching federal regulations around around wetlands, we have three provincial ones that we have to deal with. So, in Alberta, we've had wetland policy in place for a number of years that seems to be pretty functional, requires mitigation if there are impacts on the wetlands, and, um, so we feel like we're in pretty good shape there. We're pretty happy with the situation there in Manitoba. We just got new legislation um, last year that we had done a bunch of work on really over the past decade, working with a number of different governments and and the current sitting government finally got that work completed passed legislation that provides protection for wetlands, Um, you know, by our count the the impact of that would be you know millions of acres of wetlands that are spread across Manitoba so you know far-reaching impacts and and that's really important for us too so it sets the stage and says that you know anybody doing anything in the province has to keep wetlands in place and if there are going to be impacts they're required to mitigate or do restoration of of wetlands in the nearby watershed or, or somewhere within the province to offset the impacts that they have on those. And then just finally, um, the the final jurisdiction would be Saskatchewan, where we still have some work to do there. There, there are still wetland losses going on there, the, despite sort of the science really developing and showing the impacts of, of those, you know, continued wetland drainage not only impacts waterfowl, but impacts flooding, impacts nutrient flow downstream, uh, has an impact on, on climate change because of the release of, of carbon when wetlands are drained from those soils. So, you know, there's really a bunch of documented impacts of wetland losses and we just don't have progressive legislation in place yet in Saskatchewan to protect those so we continue to work on that. So wetland policy is is definitely one of those areas that that we look to invest in and we have staff in each of those provinces that they they are constantly working with their colleagues in the government to develop and implement and and successfully roll out wetland policy.
1: Wetland policy in the US is certainly a a hot topic right now with the recent release of the new definitions for the waters of the U.S., and so I want to back up just a minute and add some additional clarity w- to one thing that you started off with, and I, I know you understand this, but I, I want – for our listeners, uh, I want to emphasize one of the biggest differences, the key difference between the, between Canada and the U.S. is that in the U.S. we do have federal legislation that, that aims to uh, – to to protect wetlands and protect the quality of those wetlands, that's in the form of the Clean Water Act. And so, Scott, I think you said something to the effect of, in the states, jurisdiction lies at the federal level. And while that's true, I think the important thing to emphasize here also is the individual states also have the authority uh, to regulate wetlands within their own uh, boundaries. And 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 I think all states do have some level of wetland protection, uh, but in in some cases the that. That federal legislation, the federal definitions, provided greater protection than the states did, and so that's a big topic right now. Uh, but I just wanted to clarify that in the that in the U.S., individual states also have jurisdiction over there, uh, over some of their wetlands. But the big thing that's lacking in Canada is that broader nationwide uh wetland uh, wetland policy and so that's why uh, working at the provincial level as you've described is so important just because that's really your only avenue for wetland policy right now
2: that's right yep maybe the one point that i would make is just as we've as we've been working on this really over the past you know decade or more one of the realizations that we've come to is um during that same time period we were We were just beginning, um, to quantify some of the other benefits of wetlands. Some of the things that I talked about that, you know, wetlands provide, um, benefits to reducing the impacts of flooding during extreme precipitation events. And we know that, you know, the water in the wetlands sort of settles out and lets nutrients and other pollutants get filtered out and processed by the wetland, thus cleaning the water. A bunch of those things. We began to quantify those benefits. Um, using our science over the past about 20 years. And it was really that information on those other benefits that was really important in convincing provincial governments, in our case, of the value of having wetland policy. Um, because we were able to talk about those things, translate it to economics and, um, for example, the, the discussion here in Manitoba was, was colored by the fact that in 2011 and in 2014, we had substantial flooding across the province. That, um, in 2011, you know, they estimated it was a billion dollar flood, a billion dollar cost to the province. And once we had that information quantified about the impacts that wetlands have on reducing the severity of that flooding and storing excess water, that had lots of traction with provincial governments because it was dollars and cents. It's like, well, we can either have policy that keeps our wetlands on the landscape or maybe the next flood is a $2 billion flood or $3 billion flood. And that resonated with the policymakers um, from an economic standpoint. You know, the environmental benefits um, here in Manitoba, lots of people in, in Manitoba go to lake cabins for the summer and there are also challenges with... Algae blooms in those areas because of too many nutrients in, in the rivers that flow into those lakes. And that can be mitigated by keeping wetlands on the landscape that trap those nutrients and keeping from, keep them from running into those tributaries that end up in the lake. So it was that kind of information that was beyond just ducks, um, that was really important in giving us the traction to have success in in helping provinces develop that kind of wetland policy,
1: and that is a huge part of what Ducks Unlimited across all three organizations uh, is is doing now is championing the benefits of our wetland restoration and waterfowl habitat restoration, even beyond wetlands. That uh, pr- that those the, the benefits that they provide beyond just waterfowl. We uh, our science tells us where we need to work. To benefit waterfowl populations, as you've referenced previously in the, in uh, I think the previous episode, but we also recognize, and we have the science to back it up, as you referenced, that wetlands are so valuable for so many other, uh, so many other uh, processes that impact a much broader segment of society. And when you look out there across the different conservation organizations, Ducks Unlimited is at the forefront of that wetland conservation. Uh, those activities. And so it behooves us to uh, to be more vocal about the benefits that our wetland restoration provides uh, and to to adapt, attract additional people to our cause. And so that's really the vein in which you're talking about now, in which DU Canada and DU Incorporated here in the States is beginning to expand our programs, expand our messaging. And it's it's certainly a really exciting time. So all of those things that you mentioned play right into that. Uh, and it's, a, it's a, an a message that is more appealing when it comes to, uh, working with landowners, working with property owners, working with, uh, with policymakers. And so, uh, that will be a growing part of what we as an organization, as a family of organizations do. So what other type of, uh, work are y'all doing that falls in that, uh, in that same vein?
2: Yeah, that's a really good transition because we're, we're doing a bunch of work that, that really ties to those things. And, uh, And I would say maybe the first one that pops to mind for me is, you know, recently we've been having discussions with folks in the ag industry across the Canadian prairies uh, about challenges that they face. And, you know, we've already mentioned some of them. They they recognize that, you know, when wetlands are drained, there are downstream impacts on communities that not only nutrients but also some of their crop protection products move downstream end up in places that they don't want them. So we've been having discussions with, with many across the industry of really defining what does sustainable agriculture look like across a geography like the Prairie Pottle region. And the, the discussions of, have been quite positive where You know, the industry folks are saying, yes, we need to do a better job. You know, we have to keep our nutrients and crop protection products, you know, on the land that it's applied to. So wetlands help us do that. So, you know, in the same vein, they want to, they want to push to keep wetlands on the landscape, uh, to provide those benefits. So we've been having those discussions. We, uh, participate in a number of, of forums with ag industry in Canada. There's the Canadian Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. Um, and we have a staff member who's actually a member of that board and, and sits on the board and, you know, they work on things like certification for the beef industry. And, you know, the, it, it's, it's getting traction to where, at least across Canada right now, um, uh, McDonald's has said that they're going to source um, you know, their goal is to source all of their beef for their hamburgers from sustainably certified beef. They're not there yet, but right now they're at the point where they're getting 30% of their burgers for their premium line, the Angus Burger line, comes from sustainably certified beef production that happens, most of which across the Canadian prairies. So there are those sort of forums that we're engaged in, the, the, the analog to The Roundtable for Sustainable Beef on the Crop Side is Canadian Roundtable for Sustainable Crops. We're the only, um, non-government organization at the table with industry groups there. Same discussion there about how do we, you know, how do we ensure that we have buffer zones around wetlands? How do we ensure that You know, crop protection products are applied according to the label and and aren't getting in places that that they don't belong. How do we keep wetlands on the landscape? Because we know that they provide important benefits to agriculture as well as to biodiversity and, and other things. So those discussions, I have to admit, I'm pretty excited about because, you know, we'll continue to do great stuff with our direct habitat programs but we won't have nearly the the continental populations that we've all grown accustomed to if we don't find a way to find common ground with sort of agriculture in the big picture across these landscapes. And I think these discussions are a good way to do that. Um, you know, work working with the industry on developing, you know, new programs to restore unprofitable acres that are that are on their farm to wetlands and grasslands to provide some of those benefits. And I think it's important for industry too, because there's increasing pressure from consumers and from the public in general that they want to know that their food is produced in a sustainable way that maintains all of these ecological services on the land, maintains biodiversity on the land. And that's, that's sort of the gold standard that consumers are asking for. And so ag producers who are able to meet that sustainability commitment and demonstrate that will be at a significant advantage in markets and from a public trust standpoint um, to compete and to actually sell their products at a premium. So we, we really see lots of opportunity in that and we'll continue to work on that area that, that probably isn't an area that most people would, would think we'd be engaged in, but it's really important for the future, I think.
1: Scott, you may or may not have this information handy, but when when you talk about the, uh, Certified or or what is it? Certified sustainable. What's the label that's attached to these whether it's crop or beef? Certified sustainable beef. Okay. What are some of the criteria uh what would among those criteria that determines whether they can get that certification? What's the most important one that would be related to waterfowl? Is it related to the um lack of wetland drainage or an agreement to not, you know, demonstrated proof that they're not drained wetlands on that property?
2: Yeah. So producers, uh, there, there are a number of different pillars in there. So environmental sustainability is one of them. It, there are things that make sure they have a manure management plan per se, but, but they also get, there are also benefits to them participating in conservation programs with groups like us to maintain their wetlands, to protect their wetlands, um, with, with the beef industry, you know, wetland drainage is not much of a problem just because, you know, if you're a cow-calf operator, the two things you need to grow your product are wetlands and grasslands, and those are the same two things that, that ducks need. Um, but we've had a hand in writing those, uh, sustainability standards to ensure that, you know, the habitat work that we do and maintaining things like wetlands are written into those standards. Um, so so that's sort of the role that we play by sitting on that group is is ensuring that those standards become strengthened through time to make sure that that there are the benefits to wetlands, especially in that certification scheme.
1: We talk a lot in the states about uh, the value that uh, rice agricultural agriculture provides to waterfowl during the migration and winter period. You know, rice are, are uh, serve as surrogate wetlands, and they are used by millions of waterfowl and across the, the Mississippi-Louisville Valley, Gulf Coast, and Central Valley of California. And so we we champion that that mutually beneficial relationship there. So the thing I just want to emphasize here is that same type of mutually beneficial relationship occurs with waterfowl and beef production, and especially when you start talking about that certified sustainable. So, um, you know, I would encourage folks to to eat beef and support the ranching industry and uh, preferably get that certified sustainable uh, type of beef. I'll I'll confess, I need to look a bit closer on that. Do you know how that's marketed, how widely that's marketed, like to an average uh, consumer? when I go into the grocery store?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. There's there's definitely a label and a logo for that certified sustainable that, that you are starting to see in grocery stores. And I know, you know, I mentioned McDonald's um, had sort of moved down this path. And, and actually, in many cases, what we've seen is it is a, a big player in that game who typically helps sort of set the stage for some of this progress to be made. And that was McDonald's in this case. They said, hey, we're ready to you know, get as much of our supply as we can as certified sustainable. So they sort of raised the bar and, and pushed producers to get there because they want to, they're demanding that sustainability for, for use in their hamburgers. And so we saw rapid progress when that happened, but um yeah, you are starting to see the logo in, in grocery stores. And I think as we educate consumers about what that means and, you know, what, what realities that, that certification comes with on the landscape, um, that that will only grow and, and eventually, you know, we hope that that will be the standard by which, you know, all of the production of both beef and any other food products that happen across the landscapes that, that are important for waterfowl will, you know, will need to meet those certification standards. It definitely looks like the direction that, that things are headed right now.
1: kind of programs are you excited about now with respect to DU Canada, whether they be new or whether they be programs that have been in existence for quite some time?
2: Yeah, well, we also have extension work. You know, we, we talked about the ranching community and, you know, just the common ground with them. We, we've, we for a number of years, been working to try and say, you know, hey, as we look at that industry, you know, they have the same needs that we do, grass and water. And, you know, the reality is we'd love to see them keep doing what they're doing on all the acres that they have out there, you know, raising cows and and producing beef um or even expand the acres that they're working on. So, you know, we've had staff dedicated to working with that industry to, you know, figure out what can we do to help the industry grow and expand And, um, you know, that's, that's been new for us, but, you know, we've had success in developing marketing materials to, to talk about some of the things that we've already mentioned that, you know, from a biodiversity standpoint in the prairie pottle region, you don't find any more diverse areas than, than wetland grassland areas that are being used to raise cows. You know, that's sort of the epitome of the biodiversity hotspots when you're, when you look across the landscape up here. Um, so, you know, we've tried to market that and when groups like us talk about that, we have more credibility than when the industry itself tries to talk about it. So that's something that we've partnered with them to do. And and that's an example of, you know, some of that extension work in trying to figure out how do we support industries that, that are compatible with, the you know, with the production of waterfowl across the landscape, sort of like you talked about for rice in the South.
1: Yeah. You might have mentioned this, and, and I just missed it, but you and I worked on a paper together last year, and in that paper you included a reference to grazing clubs, uh, Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association. Is that wrapped up in the, the type of extension work you just talked about?
2: Yeah, exactly. That would be a specific example where um, grazing clubs in Manitoba, we have this Manitoba Forage and Grassland uh initiative where we bring in producers from all across the area and we, we have experts come into this facility to present information to them and science on, you know, how to maximize their forage production and, uh, you know, deal with all the challenges that they have from a production standpoint. And, you know, there, there was a time when, when we tried to do that, when we tried to, you know, share expertise, but we've found that it's far more productive and successful when we have, you know, the experts, the subject matter experts in the industry come in and share that information with producers. So, you know, we'll have hundreds of producers show up at these, uh, at these workshops or talks where they can interact with professionals, you know, in their in their arena from across the globe really or as those folks are come in to share their expertise and that's been really successful and and I know that's been something that uh producers appreciate. So that's been a good example of, you know, one of the extension kind of things. We don't have an agreement, you know, a, f- a formal agreement on on chunks of their land with any of those producers, but it is changing the way that they, that they do their cattle production and improving, um, their profitability. And that means they will be able to continue to do that on the landscape and have the footprint that they have
1: for maintaining grasslands and wetlands. At those gatherings do you have an opportunity to talk specifically about the benefits to waterfowl and other wildlife or is that just sort of left in in the background how do you approach that
2: Yeah we we definitely have a presence at those at those um at those workshops too and we'll we'll talk about the fact that you know we'll We'll have our, a little slide where we talk about, you know, we help bring this to you. And by the way, if you want to visit with us about any of our programs, things like conservation easements, those kind of things. And really what we find is that many of these extension programs and some of the other programs that we've talked about earlier, like forage conversion, um, Landowners sort of enter into those and and they really sort of test the relationship with us. You know, they may get to know us by coming to the grazing club or they may do a quarter section of forage conversion with us. And then down the road, if the relationship has been positive and as we build trust with them, then they may come to us and say, yeah, you know, tell us more about that conservation easement and, um you know, a, a good, a good, Example of that that I have is we had just that kind of relationship in Saskatchewan with a, with a ranching family where we had done some forage conversion with them. They sort of liked the results of that. And then we actually bought only a, a small quarter section, 160 acres of revolving land in the area that they operate. And they talked to us about that and the conversation shifted to conservation easements. And once they understood those, they ended up selling us conservation easements on their land. They used the proceeds that we paid them for that easement to buy the neighbor's land. And then they put conservation easements on that. And we ended up with 6,000 acres of really prime, some of the best waterfowl habitat on the continent protected. And it all started with forage conversion. So that's a good example of how you know, how there's interplay between some of these programs, you know, we may we may start with a producer and do some of those things. And if that's all they do, there's really great benefits of that. But many times it leads to a much stronger relationship and engagement from them and other things that we offer also.
1: And ultimately, that's what it all gets down to is the relationship that we have with, with individuals, uh, or really one person to another, but also just as an organization, our, our credibility is established, um, well, it's established through our the, the individuals that represent us, and and that's why it's really important to have a presence there, face to face, at these grazing clubs, and to be part of that uh, of that conversation. So, as as much as we have advanced as a a, a digital society, ultimately those face to face relationships go way farther in in building trust and um and producing favorable outcomes. So that's that's pretty cool. Do you have any? Have you had any people at those? at those extension gatherings that have approached you just out of a stronger interest in, you know, the wildlife benefits or is it all, uh, I'm sure the majority of it is driven by their agricultural operations, but are are there any people that have kind of, that are kind of branching off a bit and are just more interested in the wildlife aspect of it?
2: Yeah, there are definitely producers who, you know, they're out there on the land every day and they, they see all the wildlife that are out there and, you know, they see changes happening too that, that they're concerned about. So we hear from those. We, we also hear from a lot of them who, who just look at their land and they say, you know, I just think that this land should always be grassland. Like that's the way it's always been when I've operated on it and I want to make sure it stays that way. So you know, that's another key point is many of those producers see conservation easements as a tool for them to maintain their property in in the state that it's currently in and ensure that it stays that way. So, you know, we talk about the benefits of conservation easements from, you know, a waterfowl standpoint, but many of the ranchers see those same benefits and we'll talk very passionately about how, you know, it's a tool that's allowed them to ensure that their Future generations get to continue to use that land the way that they do in what they think is the most sustainable way it should be managed. So there are those benefits, too. You definitely see that
1: conservation ethic from many of those ranchers that we interact with. I'm sure that's an exciting exciting thing uh, to witness and be part of. Are there other uh, other programs that we wanted to talk about? Now, I know uh, winter wheat program is something that DU Canada has been involved in for uh, some number of years now. Yeah, that's
2: one that we've been investing in, been investing in both in the U.S. prairies and the Canadian prairies for for a while now. You know, we've probably been engaged in that for twenty years now. And originally, the idea was the fact that. You know, birds come back to nest in April and May and much of the cropland, um, isn't as compatible with nesting because it's disturbed and, and cultivated and there's planting going on in the springtime. That isn't the case for fall seeded crops like winter wheat or, you know, there's new varieties of fall rye that are, that are at play now. But basically those crops are planted in the fall, usually in this part of the world in September. And then they grow a bit before before winter comes, and then they sort of go dormant and lay there. And then when spring hits and the snow melts, they sort of start growing again, but there isn't any cultivation that has to happen. Um, so those are very attractive from a waterfowl standpoint. We did a bunch of science around looking at how many how many species of waterfowl and how many nests are in those winter wheat fields. And they are very, they provide very attractive nesting cover and birds are quite successful nesting in them. So all good benefits there. So, you know, some of the things that we've invested in, um, are not probably what people would typically think of either. Um, you know, we've invested in university research to develop new varieties that are winter hardy and yield more. So, you know, agronomic research to develop new varieties. And we've also worked with some of our industry partners to work on sort of the, the, the marketing and the end use of, in this case, you know, the flower and, and educating, you know, companies that use the flour on the benefits of, you know, winter wheat and, and the seed that's produced by that in producing their flour and pasta and all sorts of products that that goes into. So, you know, uh, when we were trained as waterfowl biologists, Mike, those weren't things that we probably spent a lot of time thinking about, but, you know, it's sort of, Necessity is the mother of invention here where we're, we're figuring out how to engage in those, in those sort of conversations and that kind of research to drive the outcomes that we need to drive to, to have successful conservation and sustainable waterfowl populations in key landscapes like this now.
1: Yeah, there are probably a lot of our members that aren't aware that we have on, on payroll across our organizations agronomist economist, soil health specialist, um, a whole host of folks, and increasingly uh, those with uh, a more pure uh, wetland science background that are helping us understand the important role that wetlands play in filtering nutrients and reducing stormwater and uh, all of those benefits. And as we've, uh, we've mentioned already, and we will continue to mention this, reference it as long as we Uh, do our messaging that wetlands and waterfowl habitats benefit way more than just ducks, geese and swans and it's only smart. It's only smart for us as an organization uh, to, to to champion those benefits and to attract the people that care about those benefits. And so we, we truly are doing way more than just providing good habitat for, uh, for waterfowl. And, and so it's, uh, you have to get creative sometimes to accomplish your core message or your core mission. And, and that's what we're doing. And that's always, uh, it's an exciting time to, to be involved in the organization. We have a lot of different things going on and you've shared with us, uh, a number of those. Uh, so, uh, Scott, any final words from you, any final, uh, programs that we wanted to talk about at this time. No,
2: I, I would just echo what what you said there and say that I'm excited about those broader opportunities and, you know, I had a colleague summarize it pretty well recently. He said, you know, for eighty two years or so we've been we've been producing a whole bunch of products with our conservation work and we've only been selling one of those, which was the ducks. And, you know, now we need to talk about, you know, the carbon value and uh and the flood mitigation value and the nutrient removal value of wetlands and all of those things. And, you know, I would say we already see some successes in selling those broader impacts. You know, I know we've worked with, um, the Coca-Cola Foundation. They were interested in, in, uh, wetland benefits and, uh, they, they wanted to develop what they called, uh, uh, let me think about this, get the term right. It is, uh, water replenishment credits. So they wanted to replenish for every liter of water that they use in the production of their beverages, they wanted to replenish those. Um, and so we worked with them and now they've invested over a million dollars in Canada on projects that restore wetlands and protect wetlands. And um, you know, all of those product or, or all of those projects deliver huge benefits to waterfowl. But we now see signs that there are other groups that are interested in the other aspects of the benefits that come out of those, and they're willing to pay for it. So, you know, if we can get others to the table who are willing to help pay because they value some of those other benefits, I think the future is pretty bright for
1: the impact that we can have on on things that we care about from a duck standpoint, too. It's truly an exciting time to be part of a, a Ducks Unlimited organization, and I hope our members see that. I hope they appreciate that. We're going to continue to do Good works, uh, good work across the, in, the entire spectrum of these benefits, uh, and and Scott, thank you for for bringing the message to us here. I did before we let you go. I want to pivot um, uh, substantially here. Uh, we're recording in the as I mentioned on the previous episode, the last week of the duck season here at the southern end of the latitude, and it's never too early to start looking forward to uh to next season and and in the breeding season uh, kind of more specifically to see what uh what you might be seeing in terms of habitat conditions there in the prairies you're in manitoba and so talk with us just a minute if you could about uh what kind of snowfall we've seen accumulate so far how are the wetlands shaping up there uh, as far as you understand it in manitoba and even more broadly if you have that insight
2: yeah yeah so i'll try and do that there are really a couple of factors that influence what we see come spring and and the first really we already have the answer to and that's what are soil moisture conditions when we went into freeze up in the fall and especially across manitoba we got a early snowstorm, unusually early sort of um early october that dumped like in some places over a foot of wet heavy snow um and so that has put us in a place where soil soil moisture conditions are very good. The soil was super saturated when things froze up in Manitoba and, and across, more broadly, across the Canadian prairies also. So I think we're in pretty good shape there. And then the second factor that influences what we get in the springtime for wetland conditions is just how much snowpack that we have. And I would say we're okay on that, maybe sort of in the average condition. It's it's not like we have a ton of snow stacked up, but there's some. And, you know, as we come into February and March and April, um, March and April are some of our snowiest months. So we, we still have time to pick up you know, and accumulate that snowpack that will then, when we get spring and all of that runs off and hits that frozen soil, runs into the wetlands, we, we should be in pretty good shape, but, um, you know, time will tell. We I would definitely take some more snow to replenish some of those basins that were were dry last year because we definitely were on the drier side in 2019 in the spring. So we'd like to see that change for
1: the better, but we'll see what the rest of the winter has in store. Yeah, we had actually like 2 years of pretty dry conditions there in the southern prairies, right? 2018 and 2019.
2: Yeah, that's right. We had we had dried out quite a bit, so.
1: And do I is my memory correct that towards the end of last summer, maybe in the fall, we accumulated a uh, a bit of rain—is that what you were saying, or are we, were we still dry going into the fall?
2: Yeah. The, well, no. That we did. We did get some late summer and early fall rains that that really changed that soil moisture. You know, because the challenge that we can have here is, if you have dry soil going into freeze up, you can still have a ton of snow, and when it melts, it all just soaks into the ground. If if you have good soil moisture then that's saturated and then if you get snow there's more of it is going to run off the landscape and drop into the depressions that are the wetlands scattered all across there so you kind of need both those to happen we have the soil moisture Now we're just waiting to see how much of a snowpack we end up with before spring hits.
1: Yeah, it takes multiple ingredients to really produce a a high-end product there. That's one thing that we've we've learned. And it varies so much. We talked about how big that landscape is. That's the thing. No single message that we can talk about here today is going to appropriately capture the wetland conditions as they were last year as they're shaping up this for the spring. um, to Capture those in their entirety. So we just kind of have to be aware of that too. So, well... We'll look forward to April, May, June, when those surveys get underway. We'll start getting some feedback from folks up on the, on the prairies with how wetland conditions are are shaping up. And so, uh, that's always an exciting time and if we get good if we get good wetland conditions and if we've got good uh, nesting habitat on the ground well maybe we can be optimistic for a good production that's what we're always looking for that's right well scott thanks again so much for taking the time to join us and for sharing your insights on on all the important work that uh, you and your colleagues with ducks unlimited canada are doing there yeah happy to take part Special thanks to our guest on today's show, Dr. Scott Stevens with Dubs Unlimited Canada, the Director of Regional Operations for the Prairies and, and Boreal. We also thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the, for the work that he does in getting these podcasts out to you, our listeners. And to you, our listeners, we thank you for joining us and sharing your time with us. And as always, we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment for wetlands and waterfowl conservation.